Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. I was surrounded by these brilliant Harvard MBAs and just brilliant marketers and salespeople. And I kept thinking, like, there's a lot that isn't okay in our community right now. And it's hard to focus on this incredibly important brownie project when I know that my neighbors are experiencing homelessness, when I know that my neighbors are not being given the opportunities that I've been. And so there is a deep... um, of a deep calling of, you know what, if I'm serious about living out my my values, I need to do more. And of course, at my exit, I was told that I was being a classic millennial. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. What happens when that corporate leadership path leaves you feeling a little bit unfulfilled? Well, if you're Amanda LaGrange, you start volunteering, you get involved in the creation of a social enterprise designed to reduce waste and create jobs, and eventually you leave your day job to run it. Amanda is the CEO of Repowered, which you might know as Tech Dump. We're gonna talk about that recent rebranding, but also what it's like to scale a big idea. We often talk about coming up with the idea, but just as important is the person who can turn it into a thriving organization. Established in 2013, Repowered is now one of the largest collectors of e-waste in Minnesota, having processed more than 35 million pounds of electronic waste, while also providing jobs and training for people facing barriers to employment and building a marketplace for affordable refurbished electronics. As she describes it, a triple bottom line. Amanda shares advice on building a purpose-driven enterprise, which is perhaps not where she would have expected to find herself as a kid with big dreams about business. And I told my grandmother I will stay a year or two because it's very cold in Minnesota. Yeah. And here you are. 15 years later, here I am. Um, was General Mills a goal? I mean, when you, you, where'd you go to college? Indiana University. Okay. Go Hoosiers. Hoosier through and through. All the way. Did you major in business? Did yeah. you know what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. I was very focused on becoming a business person early hmm. on. Um, what did that mean to you, being a business person? Oh, yeah. Like, I, when you think of kids playing house, or school or doctor, like I played business. I had my dad's briefcase. (laughs) I had fake checks. Um, My walkie-talkies were cell phones. Like there was just something in me that I just, and as I've aged, I've realized like it's my art form. I am not a musician. I am not a, a performing arts person. I don't have paintings on my walls. I love business and I love growing businesses. Um, but at the time, I was, when I was younger, my theory was I wanted to study accounting and get my law degree and then do something in like forensic accounting or, or something big. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in university during a lot 
of very public corporate scandals and realized that didn't make a lot of sense for uh-huh. <laughs> for how I uh, view the world and uh-huh. how I wanted to spend my time. And I started learning about social enterprise. And at that time, it was very early on. It was much more of a concept than um, a business model that I could point to examples for. Were there certain, when you think back, I mean, were there certain social enterprise businesses that inspired you or intrigued you? Yeah. I mean, at that time, um, I don't know if I could point to an example um, that was even in the U.S. Like, there was amazing things going on in microfinance. Um, especially, I feel like a lot of the examples were in India and in developing nations. And um, and so when I got to Minnesota and I started learning, like, oh, there's social enterprises here. I was like, oh, my gosh, like mm-hmm. how awesome. Yeah. And then along the way, um, working in corporate finance at General Mills, I had the opportunity to join a volunteer board for the organization that I now lead. So I always joke, be careful where you volunteer. Uh, <laughs> you might just leave a corporate corporate job. How about that? Go do fun things. So how okay, so so you're you were working at General Mills and was did you what if you had to sum up what you learned there, what yeah. that experience was like, what would you say? Oh my goodness. Um sum it up. Always know your numbers. Hmm. Don't um don't underestimate the power of a brand. Mm, <laughs> I mean, I am, good one. I yeah. am always in awe um, of the marketing skills of, of the General Mills team. Um, and I think also just I learned a lot about scale and getting, getting to be a big organization, not just um, playing small in small categories. Yeah. Yeah. Very good advice. Um, I, it seems like it does, even if the corporate world isn't for for you or for individuals that come on this show, it does provide a certain kind of baseline oh, understanding yeah. that proves really valuable. Yeah. There's no way I could have done what I've done at Repowered without General Mills. I spent two years working in a manufacturing facility uh-huh. uh, where I literally wore a snap um, like plant uniform shirt and navy pants and steel toes. And Wait, what? Yeah. For General Mills? No, or at before- ge- during oh. General Mills. So okay. I was at one of their manufacturing facilities. They made brownies and cinnamon rolls there. And um, and I learned so much about general business management mm-hmm. while I was there that to this day I apply. And wow. I, I just, I have such deep gratitude yeah. for General Mills, for the amazing leaders that are there and also for the amazing leaders that said like Amanda we can tell your pa- your passions are elsewhere huh and maybe you should pay attention to that interesting okay so it's, it was during this time that you um you joined a board yep. that led to tech dump or how did that yeah, go exactly yeah. well tech dump um now repowered goes back to the founding without a business model really in mind, but a goal of employing and providing training for adults coming out of incarceration. And so we started and tested, as many businesses do, a lot of different ways of bringing in revenue and eventually landed on a model that we called Tech Dump for 11 years, uh, which is based off of a two-day collection event of electronics that we grew from there. So when you say we, who was we? Who, who yeah. started even thinking about this? Yeah. We were originally, um, our two co-founders were inspired by a gentleman named Darren, who was really generous with his life story and explaining how hard it was for him to find a job after incarceration. And these two business partners were like, well, surely someone else is employing people with backgrounds. But it was 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very different economy then. And so... 
they weren't finding those organizations, decided to start their own as kind of classic entrepreneurs. And one of the first employees was a gentleman named Carl. And Carl one day said, hey, we're going and we're picking up this donated furniture, which was the model at the time. And we always get asked about electronics. What if we recycled the electronics? Because you know there's gold in there, right? Hmm. Which is like the famous line for any entrepreneur to hear. Their ears perk up. And um, so the volunteer board, there were, I think, about eight of us. And the small team, I think at that point, maybe five employees, decided to put together this event called a Tech Dump. And when did you come into the picture? Yeah, I was a volunteer from the very beginning on our board um, with one of the co-founders I knew through the community. And um, I will say there's a lot of my own leadership story that has to do with often being either the only woman in the room or the only young person in the room or sometimes, and this is the case, I walked into the first board meeting And I looked around the room and I was like, oh, my gosh, my voice is needed here. (laughs) No one um, can sort of have the same perspective I did. Why? Was it all men? Oh, yeah. Was it all? Okay. Like men in their 50s and 60s, all white men. Oh, wow. People who cared about the community Mm -hmm. and also definitely did not represent the community they're trying to serve. And so there's been a lot of work that we've done as an organization over the years to make sure the voices are represented. But I look back at that time and think, I remember one of the specific examples where I was like, yeah, I think I should get involved with this board. I said, do we have a Facebook page? And someone was like, do we really need that? Well, it was so early on, right? Like it was not, it just wasn't um, a common practice for organizations and businesses to have at the time. And um, so it's been a, it's been a fun journey. So, so the initial idea was to gather um, furniture and then Mm -hmm. tech electronics, refurbish, employ people in need of jobs to do that work and then sell it. I mean, was that, that was the whole thought out mission. And it wasn't even just um, furniture. It was like, take anything people will give us. So we had cars donated, pool tables. It lives in legend, although I've never been able to fact check this one, that um, we once had a pallet of two by fours donated to us. So it's like we would take in whatever was available in the community Uh and sell it. And that process of taking it in and selling it was creating the jobs of the people on the truck, the people at the warehouse, the people posting it on the e-commerce site. Interesting. Customer service. So even though you could think, oh, this is just a, this is like a resale mission, a sustainability thing, but actually it was the job creation that was the inspiration and that led to the other benefits. Exactly. And then uh, what was it called before you settled on tech? Yeah, it was called Jobs Foundation. And it's still our, I mean, any contracts we sign still have that as our legal name. Interesting. Okay. Um, what about all of that and considering that you walked into a room where nobody looked like you or sounded like you, what appealed to you? What, yeah. what made you want to go all in on this? At the time, it was the opportunity to prove that business could be a force for good, hmm. that it could be a way of bringing justice and healing into our community. And I think um, especially at that time, I was struggling with my day job being to sell more Packaged foods. Yeah. Brownies. <laughs> More brownies. Make yeah. the brownies cheaper. And brownies are good. Oh, man. Yeah. Everybody needs a good brownie. Yeah. And also, um, I was surrounded by these brilliant Harvard MBAs and just 
brilliant marketers and salespeople. And I kept thinking, like, there's a lot that isn't okay in our community right now. And it's hard to focus on this incredibly important brownie project when I know that my neighbors are experiencing homelessness, Mm. when I know that my neighbors are not being given the opportunities that I've been. And so there is a deep, um, sort of a deep calling Mm -hmm. of, you know what, if I'm serious about living out my, my values, I need to do more. And of course, at my exit, I was told that I was being a classic millennial, um, which <laughs> I took as a compliment. The company said that to you. Nah, I mean, they sort of like oh, a, rolled a, their eyes. Yeah, exactly. There was a marketing manager. She uh, was not my boss. Classic um, millennial. Classic millennial. Well, look at you. I bet that just made you more oh, yeah. uh, anxious to go yeah. do the work. <laughs> um, so, pr- so how long did it take for the the Jobs mission to become Tech Dump, which is now repowered, and we'll yeah. switch to calling it that. But for this yeah. early part, um, when did it really focus in on electronics? Within the first year. Okay. Yeah, and within the first year, I can I can still remember the decision of you know we should devote one day a week on our pickup tr- on our box truck for pickups to only pick up electronics. Like I think back on that team, like oh sweet little team, like mm-hmm. you would never recognize who we are today. Mm-hmm. But within, um, so within a year, we had started Tech Dump and tested the concept. And within probably six months after that, we exited everything else because huh. we saw such potential and such a market gap. Yeah. And, and when you say market gap, is that in terms of actually people wanting refurbished electronics who couldn't afford to go buy them new? Yeah. And so many people had what we call the pile of denial. <laughs> the, the couple printers... Cables and cords, digital cameras. I almost brought you a couple of old iPods today. It happens. My trunk, (laughs) my my partner always, he'll like open the back of my Subaru and he's like, oh, Amanda. Like I'm like a traveling um, technology Mm -hmm. uh, transport. But um, (laughs) so the the piece wise, people had this stuff. And I think Minnesotans especially care deeply about the environment. Mm -hmm. They knew they shouldn't throw it away, but they didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of the market gap. And it was a really beautiful opportunity, and it still is, to take this resource of electronics and use it to provide valuable job training and paid jobs for overlooked talent. But how you are a nonprofit. Yep. But what is the model? I mean, do you rely on on grants? I don't imagine that reselling those electronics is paying for all of the training and all the infrastructure you need. Originally, we were completely self-funded. Hmm. And it was actually a point of pride that I've now reflected on realizing we missed out on a lot of growth capital early on, um, to use for-profit phrasing. But <laughs> um, today, we're about 80% funded through our business model of either people having to pay to recycle certain items, um, computers are free to recycle, and that's because we can get it down to the component level and resell those as commodities. Mm. And then the bulk of the revenue is what you're talking about, the resale, whether it's through our e-commerce store or to retail stores. or um, We also sell bulk amounts of electronics, which it's wild to watch a trailer packed up with desktop computers on pallets going out, but hmm. that's what we do. Yep. And then the grant dollars cover things like paid on-site therapy for our team and um, things like our bear removal fund and the supports, but the model itself covers all the wages. 
And today is, I mean, how many employees are there and do they have to, can they come to you without any training? Yeah, we're at 90 employees. About 30 of those positions are in our transitional, still paid from the first hour on the job work readiness training program. Mm. And there's no requirement. Someone, I mean, we've had people that have never turned on a computer come into that program. Hmm. And um, as we've evolved and um, sort of, you know, grown up on the work readiness training side, uh, we still require everyone to get their digital literacy certifications. So you can imagine that, you know, yeah. there's a lot of patience and training that, <laughs> that has to happen. But what an amazing skills. I mean, you're not only providing yeah. a job, but that training then becomes useful and transferable as they go out and on to other jobs, I assume. Exactly. Same with forklift certification and OSHA 10. And there's just such a, a large amount of ways that we can help an individual um, show what they have to bring to the next employer to help them overcome some of those assumptions that mm-hmm. too often employers make about people that have had a history of incarceration or have had big gaps in their resume for whatever reason. So the name Tech Dump, it's memorable. It kind of tells you what, what, what yep. it is. Um, you, can all, you can visualize it immediately. Yep. What made you decide you should change the name to Repowered? <laughs> one of my most um, clarifying moments was when a very large, I will not name them, um, healthcare organization in town accidentally copied us on the entire back and forth between the various members of their IT department and more or less said, with a name like Tech Dump, do you think they really take data security seriously? Could they really handle our business? Oh. And we said, like, we hold all the right certifications. We've been in business for now 11 years. This is earlier in the, our journey. Mm-hmm. We clearly aren't getting taken seriously for the work that we're doing. And then at the same time, we had longtime friends and fans that wanted to buy refurbished computers from us, which with that time, we had a tech discounts brand name that literally for six years, no one knew about. <laughs> because, because they were focused on the dump yeah, part of it. exactly. Not the buy yep. part of it. Okay. And then as we kept adding a focus on our people, there wasn't a people focus in tech dump or tech discounts. Mm. And so we just kept sitting with like, this just doesn't feel like us anymore. Yeah. I think naming something can be such a sticking point and can be so hard. And Oh, yeah. What advice, if you think back to the early days yeah. when you and the co-founders were, I mean, would you do it differently to start? Oh, that's could such you a have? good question. I don't think we could have um, because we needed that sticky, memorable. And in the beginning, we were really a B2C org. I mean, we just... Yeah, I'm sure we worked with some small businesses, but our target was the the wonderful grandma down the street with a keyboard and printer, not Fortune 500 companies who we work with today. And so I think part of it was um, at the time we just our vision was maybe smaller. Mm-hmm. And so if I could go back, I would say have a bigger vision and plan your brand around that. <laughs> but, but I think at the time we were um, in classic startup fashion, right? Like we were just testing a concept. Mm-hmm. It was a two-day collection event. It was right. never intended <laughs> to be a brand that we lived with for 11 years. And it just kept kept growing. Exactly. Um, what, so did, was the rename, changing it to Repowered, was that an obvious choice or was it hard to come up with the new name? Oh my goodness. The behind the scenes alley. I bet. A whole year. Uh A whole year. Heartbreak moments where we're like, this is the name. 
And our legal counsel would say, I'm really sorry, but here is the company that has that uh-huh. already parked. Oh, it's maddening. Oh, and then domains and like just. Especially at- when they have the domains parked and they're not even using yep. them. Oh, yeah. Ugh. I know. Yeah. Just at every turn, it has been a lesson in patience that I didn't know I still needed in 2022 because I thought I had already learned that. <laughs> um, I'm shocked, though, because repowered seems like a pretty broad term. You'd think somebody would have that URL. No? I know. Well, repowered.org, which is why getrepowered.org uh, okay. um, is where we landed. But no one had it trademarked yet. And <laughs> that's what counts. Rebranding is no easy task. Amanda tells us how it's going and what's next right after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best & Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best & Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best in Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. So let's hear about how a new name positions repowered for a new chapter of growth and purpose. How has it been making the transition and educating people? That's a tricky thing, too. It's been fun to tell people in person. Mm-hmm. And watch their reaction. There's just this like human side that comes out, which is exactly what we were hoping for with the name. Um, We also added a tagline of fair chances for people, planet, and technology. Oh, wow. And it just feels like we've found our way of explaining who we are in a concise way after 11 clunky years of we do electronics recycling, but we also sell it. And then we also do work, like, yeah, work readiness. but I cannot tell you the number of even presentations I've given where I'm like, and t- repowered. <laughs> so I feel like I need a swear jar at some point where I'm like, put a dollar in, Amanda. You called a tech dump again. Well, I um, won't feel so bad if I oh, slip up then if you're no. still doing oh, that. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, one of the things that fascinates me about your role and the organization you just hit on, which is that you are doing these multifaceted things. Yeah. You have more than one mission, so to speak. Yeah. How do you navigate that? How do you personally? personally divide your time and your energy and your, you know, your thinking powers. Absolutely. Oof. I am so grateful for a board treasurer that we had um, on our board many years ago who would always say to me, Amanda, where there is no margin, there is no mission. Which <laughs> all you have to say to a f- former finance person is anything about margin and they're yeah. terrified. But um, so definitely when I think through the impact work that we're doing, I know that it has to be financially stable. I know that we could make so many more investments in our work readiness team. And also, if I don't know that we're going to be around in a year because of those investments, we have to balance it out. Hmm. And then when it comes to balancing between all of the mission areas that we work with, um, we really try to just show how it's all connected. Mm-hmm. Some days are easier than others. Any any yeah. examples of, of ways or places where it becomes easy to sort of show the full circle of oh, it yeah. all? We love circles, by the way. Circular <laughs> economy, all the things. Um, one of my favorite projects um, and, you know, the weird silver lining, I guess, the, the weird opportunity that came out of the pandemic. In early 2020, 
some of our long-term partners at Ramsey County in the Workforce Solutions area came to us and they said, all of the library computer labs are closed and we have record high unemployment. We need to figure out how to get computers into people's homes. And our team (laughs) spent some time and we're like, well, if there's one thing we know how to do, it's to refurbish computers and get them out. And so this team of amazing talent who, um, you know, it's normally the first to be impacted by high unemployment rates. It was that team of talent that refurbished hundreds of laptops, got them ready, paired them with hotspots and headsets, worked through the process to make sure there was digital navigators through another organization called Literacy Minnesota, and distributed hundreds of tech packs, as they were called into the community. And so it was really awesome to watch this group of people rally around a need in our community. And at the same time, we could have easily just gone out and bought brand new computers. Mm -hmm. But the opportunity was to say, there are IT assets that have come out of large corporations that have three, five, eight years left of life in them. Mm -hmm. We're minimizing our environmental impact and at the same time addressing the digital inequities that exist. And I think too often during that time, we were having to explain like, yes, even in St. Paul, even in Ramsey County, there are people that do not have a computer in their home, Mm -hmm. that do not have internet in their home. And how beautiful for a team like ours at Repower to be a part of solving that need. So you, how do you think through, you're, you're presented with a complex opportunity, let's yeah. call it, not yep. challenge. Um, how do you think through, you know, how to approach it and the benefits? You've got you've to first tackle the, the real need, which is getting computers to people. Yeah. And then do you start thinking about, oh, and this is a plus for the environment and this puts people to work. Like, how, how do you sort it out in your head to I, keep it all straight? Yeah, I guess I'm a really good multitasker. <laughs> yeah, kind of have it's to probably be. probably why I have too many tabs open on uh-huh. any web browser at one point. But for me, it's just how we operate. Yeah. Like, I don't really compartmentalize them. In some ways, there's sort of a test of like, is this really our lane? Is this really the work we should be doing? And if it's not tapping into those three areas, sometimes I'll say like, well, isn't there another organization that should be doing this? Mm. So I guess that's one way that I approach it. But the other, and I think this might be one of my pandemic survival approaches, but a lot of it comes down to like, will this give our team energy? Because time management is a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now it is much more around, will this be something that really brings our team joy and unity and energy? And I think that probably is also a proxy for does it hit on in the right balance people planet and technology yeah when when did you come up with that the people planet and technology yeah well ali i would love to say i came up with it but you know <laughs> oh, we, had just a take very, credit. we had a very fancy very fancy agency ah uh, uh, yes that there, helped with that it was humbling to realize after 11 years that there's a reason you hire professionals Interesting. Yeah. I yeah. think that in itself is good advice because oh. you can feel like, well, nobody knows this better than me. Yeah. I should be able to have the words. But I, sometimes you need someone yeah. who can take a step back. The day that this one, can I, can I plug people on here? Go ahead. Right. Go knock, ahead. knock agency. Oh, Thank you great. for yep. being wonderful. Mm-hmm. The day that their team, I mean, it's all through Zoom, right? Because we're living mm-hmm. in pandemic times working on this project. The day that they presented the phrase powering forward. 
But that's what our team does. We Mm. power forward. I literally couldn't speak on the Zoom call. Like I was just, I just, and I mean, even right now I've got goosebumps. Yeah. Because I felt so seen of the work that we do. I felt like they understood the, the resource of our team. They understood the beauty, the opportunity. Like it just, um, oh goodness, it just, it got me. Yeah. It that, still gets that's, me. Those are amazing moments when you yeah. have that kind of breakthrough. When it was Tech Dump, you officially, Tech Dump officially got its start in 2013? 2011. 2011. Yeah. Okay. You became, you officially joined in 2013. It's yep. like these two-year increments. Yeah. Joined in 2013 <laughs> and then became CEO in 2015. Yeah. That was pretty fast. Are the co-founders still involved? How did that transition go to, to leadership for you? Yeah. One of the co-founders is still on our board. He is the um, unruly entrepreneur still. It's always like, Amanda, why are we not growing faster? Thanks, George. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'll be listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. So definitely there's still such deep heart. And I think there's that certain appreciation for the role of founders and the the role of scalers sometimes. Mm. Like I do not. I sometimes bristle when people are like, you're a startup leader. I'm like, I am, but I wasn't the one that parked the first domain or set up the printer, right? Like there's something around, there's a proof of concept. So you don't think of yourself as an entrepreneur? I do now. Hmm. It took me a long time. Ooh, when I became, when I was named CEO in 2015, I remember being introduced on this panel about, and there were three social entrepreneurs. And I felt the need when I came up to talk about how my title was CEO, but I didn't. You were the founder. Exactly. Yeah. Like I I had all these excuses. Huh. And since then, I look back and I'm like, oh, Amanda, like one, nobody cared. And and two, like, why does it matter? You show I show the results of a of growing this enterprise. Yeah. And of being a steward and a leader of it. And kind of these titles don't. Don't really matter. Well, it's interesting because we've talked to lots of founders on By All Means who have that idea, but then at a certain point realize they're not the one to take it to the next level. Yeah. And I think that's a common scenario. And then they step back out of yeah. the way or join the board and let someone yep. else do the scaling. Is that how you saw yourself? You're the scaling type? And, mm-hmm. and what what does it take to, to do that well? Oh, yeah. Um, I definitely, because I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur when I stepped in. Actually, I mean, we're on a podcast, so we get to go there. When I first became CEO, I made a list of how I would know when it was time for the next CEO to come in because I was so convinced that I was not a CEO. Oh. To this day, I sometimes refer to myself as an accidental CEO because I never intended, never intended to be a CEO. Well, what happened? Well, in 2015, the markets had tanked. Um, So our basket of commodities at that time, we were doing very little refurbishing, had dropped about 40%. And it was time to really pivot the business model. And one of our co-founders who had done such a great job of selling and bringing in stuff wasn't as much of a people operator and a people manager. And actually, I don't think he had ever had direct reports before that role. And so it was just sort of a natural move in. Hmm. There was... Definitely at that time, a question mark of like, can we come back from this? Which somehow helped my fear of failure at age 30 as a very young woman stepping in as CEO to be like, well, 
you know, if it, if I can't figure it out, it's not on me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so even though you might take the title of CEO, the the that was already in motion, and if things weren't going to work out, that, yeah. that preceded you. <laughs> so okay, so you're making a list of people yeah. who could also be CEO. Thinking what that you're just this is a temporary yeah. oh yeah stop for you. Yeah. So the fact that we're almost to the seven year mark is very hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why did you did you think because you would get restless because you're a millennial? Oh, no. Or did you think, I mean, were you worried that you couldn't do the work? Yeah, I was totally worried that I couldn't do the work. Um, I think phrases like imposter syndrome get used almost maybe too much now. But that's where I was, right? Like I would show up to work thinking, I hope no one knows how much I don't know of how to do this job. Mm -hmm. And along the way, even I joined, I was really grateful for the Bush Foundation for investing in me as a Bush Fellow in 2018. And a lot of my work, which was supposed to be around how do you grow and scale a social enterprise, ended up being a lot of like, how does Amanda get over her fear of failure and risk and get out of the way so that the social enterprise can grow and thrive? And I learned through that. I joined a CEO roundtable and I looked at all these CEOs and I was like, oh, there's not one way to be a CEO. Hmm. There's not one way. The way that that person just did that, like, I could never pull that off and wouldn't want to. And the way that I lead, they they could never pull that off and they Mm -hmm. wouldn't want to. And so I feel like I really finally got comfortable being CEO around 2018, 2019. Interesting. How would you describe your leadership style? Oh, man. My team loves to joke that I mandate meditation (laughs) and writing thank you notes. Mm. So there's a lot of my leadership style that I think drives certain people bananas because I can be a very hands-off leader. My theory is you hire really great people who are even better than you at the things that they do and you get out of their way and resource them in the ways that they need. But I think that a lot of my, my leadership style comes back to thinking of myself as a steward of the organization. It is one of the benefits of leading a nonprofit versus a for-profit where there's technically no owner. We all are owners and nonprofits of public trust. Mm -hmm. And so it allows me to sort of separate my own self-interest a lot in those decisions. Hmm. And I find that freeing. And so a lot of my questions are like, what is the best thing that I can do for this organization with the information that I know from a place of empathy and compassion and accountability? You mentioned that you now finally in yeah. 2022 <laughs> feel like an entrepreneur, which yeah. is kind of interesting and intriguing yeah. to me that you sort of backed into that. It feels kind of reversed. Why do you now feel like an entrepreneur? How do you define that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was an entrepreneur back then, too, because I define <laughs> entrepreneurs as people who solve problems. Yeah. But I think in my head, I had so many ideas of what a CEO or what an entrepreneur looked like. and That they were those like rambunctious entrepreneurs that couldn't help themselves but start 20 businesses a year. And and that just wasn't me. Like I'm I think one of my skills is identifying something that works and figuring out how to do more of it Mm -hmm. rather than the really wild out there thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I bring a lot of like stability and planfulness, which. As an accounting undergrad is no surprise, right? (laughs) Yeah. The initial idea was there, but I mean, it was still very new and young and you figured out what this could be and what the the power was and and how to get there. Yeah. I love hypotheses and testing. 
I think that's part of what often can appear to be super entrepreneurial is when people are constantly like iterating and testing on things. But the reality is it's kind of like, okay, I have this theory. How do I test it? Okay, what did I learn from that? Okay, what's the next test? And how do I learn from that? And then all of a sudden, we're at 90 employees. (laughs) Really, I'm curious what you see in terms of what is donated, what is needed, does it align? Because sometimes I feel like, ugh, is this even of any use to anyone? What should we all know? Yeah, well, one of the most important pieces to know about electronics is because they're technically commodities, you should always recycle them. There's no like, oh, this is actually a Windows 95 computer, so I should just throw it away. Like, there's still commodities in it, still Mm -hmm. recycle. But what happens on the resale side, if someone brings in an iPhone 10 today, Mm -hmm. we can refurbish it. We can sell it in our e-commerce store. We can sell it in our retail stores. And a person can access affordable technology with our warranties and protect the environment. And how beautiful. Mm -hmm. If you leave that in a drawer for the next 10 years. Suddenly that iPhone 10. It's just a commodity. Uh Uh-huh. So So, then it's just about the parts. Exactly. And there's still good that can come from it, but less good. So what's the shelf life typically? It's around five years, but it really depends. I mean, there are quirky things. Okay, so there's this specific kind of IBM keyboard that clicks when you touch it. Okay. If you sell it on eBay, it goes for big dollars. Huh. This thing's ancient. It's like yellowing. The plastic is yellowing. Yeah. You just really never know what people are into. But people want this. Are you getting a lot of blackberries? Oh, yeah. Days? We sell those, <laughs> yeah. Blackberries. But I, at the same time, we see really new stuff. And this is part of where, and we were talking earlier about 2015 and the, the pivot, part of the pivot to more of the B2B side where we started working with bigger companies. Well, at that time, any company, mm-hmm. now really big companies, um, was because when we can get in like 400 matching laptops, we can wipe and repair them if they need and resell them way more efficiently. Hmm. And so, so how does yeah. that work? When you talk about big companies, do you want to yeah. name drop it all? Do you no, want to because people? my competitors might be listening. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah. a big company partners yep. with you. What does that mean? It's yeah. just that they are replacing constantly and they're, and they're committing to all of their yeah. electronics yep. going to you. So especially now, we see most of our companies customers with like a four-year asset cycle. So as they're cycling through, which we could talk forever about the impact of pandemic and supply chains Mm -hmm. on that frequency. But um, so our team will schedule a pickup. They go out in our box trucks. They bring it back. We have a whole, you know, 90, I think, security cameras and controlled access in our facility. We hold certifications for all the data wiping. But the big piece is going through and making sure that anything can, that can be repaired and refurbished is, mm-hmm. and then anything else is recycled. When you talk about competitors, are you talking about for-profit businesses? Yeah. Really? Yes. That are doing that service, but they don't have the same like employment mission yeah, that you do. Yeah, exactly. It is fascinating within the state of Minnesota that the majority of weight collected by counties in this state actually head to Wisconsin. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so that's um, that's something we're working on. And, and actually, we've been able to work with Ramsey County recently on some partnerships with them where they factored in the local impact into their RFP process. Hmm. And it's the first time that I've been part of an RFP that asks about, like, how are you thinking about local workforce? How are you benefiting the community? How do you think about equity? Wow. So they're, they're ahead of the times. 
Are, are you finding that approach within the business community as well? Not as much as I would like to see. It's hmm. something where I really feel like um, businesses are missing out on the what feels like an easy ESG win of saying like, okay, we're already getting rid of these computers. Why wouldn't we work with Repowered to do some bigger good with them? Mm-hmm. And we know how to do impact reporting. We know how to do all the metrics they need for their sustainability reports. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just about getting their IT team to make a change. Is, is that the, well, I mean, and, and thus the, the name change. Yeah. And is that the battle, though, convincing them that even though, is it because you're a nonprofit or because they perceive you as being smaller? What, what's the hang up? Some of it is honestly that IT professionals don't have enough time in the day anymore. Mm-hmm. I and mean, they were already stretched really thin from a lot of outsourcing before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden add in remote workers throw into the mix just general pandemic exhaustion, mm-hmm. and then increase cyber concerns. I mean, there's just so many concerns around security breaches today, which, um, you know, whether there's more of them or not, um, people are finally aware of the need to take it seriously. And so the IT professional, like, I, I give them so much credit for all that they're navigating right now in their businesses. And so it's a lot to ask them, like, okay, can't you change your process? And this company that you've worked with for 10 years that you know everything about their children, like, yeah. go meet these other places. Yeah. But at the same time, that business has people, especially higher up in the organization, saying, we're part of the Twin Cities community and we need to do good. And we need to do things that benefit the local economy. And mm-hmm. I think there's also something compelling around our worker side where people are saying, hey, we need, we need labor. And mm-hmm. they're looking at us saying, we need more graduates of your program. Hmm. And we say, yep, we need more laptops to fuel the whole thing. <laughs> I get it. And, and that's a piece of it, too, that it's not just that you're giving them a job. You are creating workforce that goes out. Yeah. In, okay. yeah. Our, our work readiness program is 18 months currently. OK, interesting. Um, so because of all this, does it not bother you that like a lot of, you know, technology today, a lot of this equipment does seem to fail the minute the warranty is up after <laughs> two or three <laughs> years because you know that it's going to do more good? Can we feel oh. better about it? H- help me because yeah. I look at like our my personal tech dump pile <laughs> that I need to get to you. And yeah. it's just like, oh, this is awful. I know. Often when I'm giving tours, like we have um, Gaylord boxes, like a big watermelon box. It's just full of phones. And people look in and be like, oh, my word. And I say, yep, if it weren't that for the job creation side of this, I think I'd probably just like cry in the corner of my mm-hmm. office because it's so depressing. But the reality is there can be hope, especially when we can refurbish it and resell it and meet people's need in the community. And the other piece that also really gives me hope is a lot of our work around the right to repair legislation. And so for the last seven years, we've been putting pressure on manufacturers, Apple, mm-hmm. to make repair parts, repair mm. manuals, and upgrades available for purchase. And there's a huge win this year in the New York Senate. And so reportedly, I mean... I've been involved with this legislation for seven years. I've become very jaded. But tell (laughs) us, tell us, what's the win? um, It passed. It passed through um, the full state process and is now legislation that says manufacturers of electronics Mm -hmm. have to make parts, manuals, and upgrades available for purchase. And so then any consumer, any independent repair shop should be able to. 
And that's just in New York that that passed? Yeah, but so it's this, a state by state thing? It's state by state, but the reality is if New York passed it, everybody is going to have access to it. The other piece that's really relevant to talk about, um, especially in Minnesota, is that the Minnesota version of this legislation included way more than just electronics, but also agriculture equipment. Mm. And um, we talked earlier that I'm from southern Indiana. I come from a family of farmers. LaGrange, my last name, literally means the barn or Uh the granary. uh Um, And so I just always think of my granddad, LaGrange, and his his tractors, which today he would never be able to fix. Yeah. Because now you're... It's designed to fail. They want you to just keep buying. Exactly. And everything's becoming that. I mean, the Internet of Things is exciting. And as a recycler and refurbisher, it is terrifying to, to me mm-hmm. how much we're not going to be able to fix our stuff if there isn't continued pressure on manufacturers to make sure that we can. Interesting. So what's your advice for consumers as we're making smart decisions up front, purchasing? I mean, once we have the stuff, obviously, we get it to repowered. Yep. But yeah. what, what, what advice would you have? Yeah. Well, first, less is more. Do you mm-hmm. really need the Google Home Mini on Black Friday? Probably not. Less is more. If you are going to buy it, buy something refurbished. If you, for some reason, can't buy refurbished, let's say you're a person that uses AutoCAD and you need the latest and greatest computer, buy something that's going to last as long as possible and is easy to repair. And there's some great guides online, especially from um, our friends called iFixit. Mm. Quick Google search, you'll find them. And they do repairability guides that say like, all right, this one's great, this one's terrible. Oh. And a lot of that has to do with the amount of glue, the type of screws, if you can buy parts. Yeah, I would never think of that before buying, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, how long will it last? And I think we've seen examples outside of electronics, especially if we think about um, textiles and clothing and Patagonia and the ability to repair. Mm-hmm. So I'm optimistic that we'll start to make this shift on I electronics. Was, yeah, I was going to say it seems like there's definitely a, a, a title change in terms of consumer awareness and demanding some of this and companies actually seeming like they're on the right side of, yeah. <laughs> of history by, by being you know pro-recycling and refurbishing. Yeah. And I think so much of it is consumers, we as consumers, we have a lot more power than we realize. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of smart marketers out there, uh, especially at a company with a fruit name, mm-hmm. um, where they're really great at greenwashing and impact washing. Mm-hmm. And so to really push on like wonderful Apple that your products are in um, sustainably sourced paper boxes. And also I can't refurbish the majority of your stuff. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, you got to. Yeah. You got to realize where your biggest impact is. And it's a lot of why we do impact reporting yeah. and to make sure that we're really holding ourselves to a, a true social return on investment. What is your advice? I feel like there are so many businesses today that are going back and trying to come up, you know, establish a mission. And yeah. then I, I feel like rare is the business or organization that starts today without a mission. Yeah. What advice do you have in setting that up so that it really does make an impact? Yeah. To very early on decide how you'll define success. What will the outcomes be that you're trying to achieve? Um, outcomes, not outputs of numbers of people. Like, no, you really want to affect change. And um, I would say one of the other pieces that's really shifted for me in the last few years is um, that balance of working in the system and on the system. So there was a while where I was 
in a little bit of a dark and twisty place <laughs> with Repowered where I was like, are we a Band-Aid to the issue here? Mm. Um, and sort of making it okay for people to keep buying Google Home Minis every Black Friday um, yeah. and finding us as a, a home for them at the end. But the amount of work that we've done on policy and community education and really trying to change sort of public opinion is how I've made my peace with that. So that would be the other piece, especially for social impact organizations, is just because you can monetize it and scale it, like really think about how are you changing the system so that you don't even need to exist. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, is nonprofit essential to what you do? Could you do this as a for-profit business? Would yeah. it change everything? If we um, could go back, so I think it was 2014, 2015 that Minnesota passed the Social Benefit Corp legal mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm. If that had existed, we would have structured as it back then. Um, we actually spent a lot of time with a few lawyers <laughs> along the way saying, should we switch? Yeah. And especially because there was a time period where we felt like equity investment was not an option for us because we were a nonprofit. And so we looked into a bunch of different legal structures. But there's so many ways to achieve impact. Um, I think you can be any, any structure. I think it's becoming even more common. I'm seeing, especially on the West and East Coast, of sort of nonprofits that own for-profits and for-profits that then have a nonprofit foundation side. And mm-hmm. it's just going to all be all mixed together pretty yeah. soon. It made sense for, for you to stay yeah. with the model you have. Yeah. When you think about your um, yourself, Amanda, as a little girl playing business, <laughs> yeah, is is would would she be excited to see what Amanda, the CEO, is doing today? Oh yeah, I think she would be like, "You're what? You do what? Like, there's no <laughs> annual electronics recycling existed at the time, right, but, right? But all my grandparents grew up during the Great Depression, so probably a little Amanda would not be surprised that I am deep in refurbishing and reuse and recycling. But I think there's always been a strong question in my life of like, how am I doing good by my neighbors? And how am I making sure that I'm bringing love and joy to the planet? Mm -hmm. And you're doing that. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. It's a it's a great story. And it's so cool to see this all evolve. If you uh, um, had to say what is on the to do list now, you've got the name change that's out there. What's next for Repowered? I would love to see us doing more uh, fair chance employment consulting for companies that are Mm. trying to figure out how to employ the amazing talent that we've had the honor of employing for the last 11 years and um, to do it in a way that isn't like the one-time webinar, that it's the continued support of bringing in the experts that we work with that have had the lived experience of being an employee with that background. And, And then the other piece is I really am bullish on our our retail stores, which is a hilarious thing to say in 2022, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> tell me about that. Why do you say that? They're, we've got great inflation beaters, you know? Like every, yeah. every company trying to figure out how to save money, every household trying to figure out how to save money. We, just, we have such amazing technology that is way more affordable. And so for as much as secondhand jeans and used cars have become mainstream, I'm really hopeful that people will give refurbished technology you know, 
a couple more looks uh, yeah. as they're as they're thinking about cost savings. Would you open more stores? Does of that make course. sense? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll watch for that. Yeah, because it turns out people don't like to drive very far for their refurbished <laughs> technology. Yeah. Which is why we have e-commerce, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be on the lookout. It'd be nice to have one of those in the neighborhood. And you can do drops at the stores too, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Just don't call it a dump. Just don't call it a dump. Well, I think a lot of us today are looking for purpose in our work. Amanda's journey really brings to light the the path to, to finding your purpose in business. For some more perspective on that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Jason Paddett is the Associate Professor of Management. Jason, I know you had some thoughts about Amanda's journey and and about what it what it tells us about being her you know her kind of conflict between is she an entrepreneur is she a CEO what is she So I really enjoyed the part of the interview where Amanda was talking about her journey as a kid starting out like playing business and then when she was at General Mills and her superior there on her way out saying oh Amanda you know such a millennial right. trying to pursue yeah. your your passions in in business and it, it led me to think about, you know, what is Amanda's social identity? And mm. she was kind of like struggling with the thought of being a CEO versus an entrepreneur. And eventually, as she really like grew into it, she just kind of dropped trying to make the distinction and recognizing, you know, she's leading this organization and she's coming to it from the position, social identity of being a, a missionary. Mm-hmm. So instead of the kind of traditional Darwinian you know, let's make the most profits and not really be concerned about what business we're in. Amanda is looking at this from multiple aspects. There's yeah. sustain environmental sustainability aspect. There's certainly the jobs program aspect, the recycling aspect. So, you know, sustainability, environmental side, social justice side, really complex way of looking at the missionary identity that she's bringing to this business. Yeah. And I could see that a lot of businesses can relate, especially today, as I think more and more businesses that traditionally have just been about, you know, making money and are now looking to to sort of build in that, you know, what is the bigger purpose in what we're doing? But when you have multiple purposes or functions like this, what's the best advice? Right. It's a real challenge. And often, you know, there's a big pressure to, to grow in this type of business. So uh, Amanda also mentioned, you know, a colleague once said to her something about, you know, if there's no margin, there's no mission. Mm-hmm. Well, this is partially right, right? Uh, there's different ways of financing a business. And one of them is through the cash you generate from operations. So obviously, she mentioned that a, a large portion of Repowered now is funded and all of wages are covered through essentially o- operations. But then there's also a portion that comes from grant dollars. So as a missionary, missionaries are often great at finding ways to leverage these alternative sources of financing for their business to help them sustain some of the other aspects that aren't operational. So job training or some of the mental health services that Repowered provides to its service its employees are financed in alternative ways. Mm -hmm. So looking at it more creatively and not just trying to drive all your cash flow through your operations is one way for a missionary to try to satisfy these multiple objectives simultaneously. Yeah. Well, they seem to have figured it out and and, and found a name to to sum it all up. I think we could all probably use a little bit of that creativity in, in business. Absolutely. I agree. 
And I know, Jason, that that you uh, and and your family have definitely made uh, made use of of the repowered stores and and sites. We have our eleven uh, <laughs> year old has since he was three or four years old been very much into recycling, and uh, that's how we actually found Tech Dump in the first place was uh, with uh, old electronics that we needed to uh, bring in for recycling, and our our son was the uh, catalyst for that. Well, there you go, a future missionary driven leader. How about that? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's right, Allie. Jason, thanks so much for your perspective, and thank you to our presenting partner, the University of Saint Thomas Opus College of Business. To learn more about our show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all sorts of past interviews and professor insights right there. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Mm-hmm.